Let's open our Bibles tonight, 1 Kings chapter number 10. 1 Kings chapter number 10. And uh, you might say, well, preacher, we've been preaching in Matthew, and we have indeed, and we're going to be preaching from Matthew tonight as well. But there's one verse I want to read to you from the book of Matthew, and we're going to read several from the book of 1 Kings. And so I'm just a kind, generous person and figured I wouldn't make you turn to two places. Somebody say amen right there. Uh, so if you turn to 1 Kings chapter number 10, then as you do, I'll read to you one verse from the book of Matthew chapter 12, and then we'll read a portion of Scripture out of 1 Kings chapter number 10. The Lord Jesus, of course, we've been following this theme in Matthew chapter 12 of three great uh, statements, declarations of His superiority that He has made, the first of which He said that a greater than the temple was there. And we use the word sanctuary. We said a, a greater worship than the sanctuary. And then he said that a greater than Jonah was there, a greater than the servant of God in the book of Jonah, a greater witness than that servant. And tonight, by the Lord's help, I want us to notice what he says about King Solomon. Verse number 42 of Matthew 12 says, "...the queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon." And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. We find this narrative recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter number 10 when the queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon. It says in verse number 1 of 1 Kings chapter 10, And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels uh, that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. When she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king, which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom, and the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel, and his cupbearers, and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came, and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. She gave the king an hundred and twenty talents of gold, and of spices very great store and precious stones, There came no more such abundance of spices as these, which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir a great plenty of almond trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almond trees pillars for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, harps also and psalteries for singers. There came no such almond trees, nor were seen unto this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this opportunity. Pray that you'd bless your word tonight. 
And Lord, I know the greatest way in which you can bless your people is through your word. So I pray, Lord, that through it you would bless us, that, Father, you would stir our hearts, that you'd fix our gaze upon Christ. And may we leave here loving him more. We'll be sure to give you glory. We ask it in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Well, a couple weeks ago, we preached on how Christ uh, was a greater worship than the sanctuary of the Old Testament. And then last Sunday night, we preached on how Christ's witness was a greater witness than the servant in the book of Jonah. And how that they in Christ's day would uh, have a greater measure of responsibility, for they had heard a greater message, a greater witness, a greater sermon, a greater sign from a man with a greater spirit uh, than even Jonah was. But tonight I want us to notice very briefly that uh, in 1 Kings chapter 10 and Matthew chapter number 12, we learn that uh, those that were privy to the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus and those of us that are through the holy inspired word acquainted with his life, we are exposed to a greater wonder than Solomon. You know, the word that's used in Matthew chapter number 12, it speaks distinctly of his wisdom. And we're going to say something about his wisdom tonight. But the impression that I get when I read the Queen of Sheba's experience with Solomon, it goes beyond just the wisdom that he contained. She was in wonder at how glorious of a king, how regal of a king, how prosperous of a king, how capable of a king that Solomon was. She had heard in her country that such a king existed, and she did not believe it. But she was at least sincere enough with herself, interested enough in the truth, that she was willing to go from the uttermost parts of the earth, travel a long distance, just to find out if what she had heard about Solomon was true. Can I remind you that the book of Deuteronomy tells us that the word of faith is not far off from us. It's not up in the heavens, it's not down in the depths of the sea, but it's nigh unto us, even in our mouth and in our heart, that we may do it, that we may believe it. We don't have to go far to find out if Jesus is all that the Bible says He is. And because of that, those of us that have lived in this dispensation of grace, this day after the earthly ministry and life of the Lord Jesus, and the overall spirit of Matthew 12.42 relays this, that we bear a greater responsibility... It is more incumbent upon us to be uh, in wonder awe of the person of the Lord Jesus than it was for the Queen of Sheba to be in awe of Solomon in his day. I want to give you a few very simple thoughts tonight, examples of ways in which I believe the Lord Jesus, that the wonder of His throne, of His majesty, of His glory, is far superior uh, to Solomon's. And you might say, well, preacher, on this Sunday night, we've come back, we, we ate a big old meal, we, we, we napped a little bit, but we didn't get it all napped out, and, and here we are. Uh, what am I going to do with that? Here's what I want you to do with it. I want to ask you this. Are you as in love with Him as you ought to be? Are you as in awe of Him as you ought to be? Or has He just kind of, have you grown comfortable with Him? I'll tell you this, that the Queen of Sheba, when she saw Solomon, the Bible says there's no more spirit in her. I think the last thing that could be said about her experience in meeting Solomon, I think the last word that could define that would be the word apathy. But you know the sad truth for a lot of us, we've just plumb God over it. It just don't excite us the way it used to. We know it to be true, and it's a it's an ingrained part of our life, but sadly, a great we've just got used to how good He is how gracious He is in our lives. God, help us to never, to never get over how wonderful He is. God, help us to never lose the wonder of it all.
I want you to notice five ways in which I believe that the Lord Jesus was greater than Solomon. Now, Solomon undoubtedly was one of the greatest men to ever live. And in fact, the very characteristic of Solomon that the most emphasis is placed upon is his wisdom. You know the story of how that Solomon, whenever he ascended to the throne, when God ordered that Solomon would be the one that would reign after his father David, he was the divinely appointed king of Israel, that God appeared to Solomon and told Solomon that he would grant him anything that he wished. He could have anything that he wanted. He could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for power. He could have asked for influence. But Solomon asked for just the right thing. Boy, this is a great lesson in life, by the way. Uh, You know, the Bible says that wisdom is the principal thing. With all thy getting, get wisdom. And uh, with with all thy learning, get understanding. Solomon understood that if he had the wisdom to live for God and the wisdom to conduct his responsibilities appropriately and diligently that God would take care of everything else. He knew if he sought first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these things would be added unto him. And so Solomon, he didn't ask for any of those things. He said, Lord, I'm a child. I don't know how to go out or come in. And that was a way of saying, I don't know how to do what you've called me to do. I don't know how to be a proper king. I need wisdom in order to do that. And he asked God for wisdom. God was so pleased with Solomon's answer that he did indeed grant his wisdom and a greater measure and portion than any normal individual that ever lived and walked this earth. But he also added to that prosperity and power and influence and prominence. And so Solomon was known for his wisdom. And the thing above all that had drawn the Queen of Sheba to come and seek Solomon out, she had questions. In fact, the Bible says she had hard questions. These weren't just regular questions. These were, these were things she grappled with. They kept her up at night. They, they, they baffled uh, the pagan priests that lived in her land. And so she said, I'm going to seek out Solomon because he has more wisdom than anyone else. The Bible describes the wisdom of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 4. It says that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, the Ezrahite, and Heman, and Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all nations round about. And he spake three thousand proverbs, and his songs were a thousand and five. And he spake of trees from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. He spake also of beasts, and of fowl, and of creeping things, and of fishes. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. In other words, Solomon's wisdom was not just uh, the wisdom of some sort of Eastern guru. It was not just some sort of philosophical uh, philosophy wisdom, but rather he was a man of science. He was a man of brilliance. He was a man that knew God and the ways of God and the wisdom of God. He had more wisdom than anyone else. But can I tell you this? When we communicate with the God of glory, when we pray to the Lord Jesus Christ, when we learn of Him, when we let Him lead and guide our lives, we're dealing with one whose wisdom is greater than Solomon's. Greater than Solomon's. Now you might say, well, preacher, how could you say such a thing? The Bible even says that he had more wisdom than anyone else. No, the Bible says this, that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding. You see, Solomon's wisdom did not come just from mere intellectual exertion and diligence and dedication. It was divinely endowed to him. God gave him that wisdom. But the Lord Jesus did not derive his wisdom from God. The Lord Jesus was the wisdom of God because he was God in the flesh. 
And so don't it just stand a chance that if something is distilled from something else, that the original would be pure. The original would be more potent. The original would be something of greater purity. And the wisdom that Solomon received, it was divine wisdom. And when it was given to him, undoubtedly it was unmingled. But Solomon was a human being like anyone else. Now let me be very clear in what I'm about to say here. The wisdom that was pinned under inspiration of the Holy Ghost in the book of, uh, of, of Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, the book of Proverbs, is indeed the wisdom of God. It's Holy Ghost. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's exactly what it ought to be. But when you look at Solomon's life, it becomes apparent that in the way that he conducted his life, he did not always behave in a wise manner. In fact, one of the great tragedies of Solomon's life is that it ends in failure and in disgrace. Uh, it ended uh, not in a very wise way. So Solomon, for all the wisdom that he had, he still had to battle his flesh. He still had to battle his fallen sin nature. But the Lord Jesus, being sinless, being righteous, being untainted by sin and unspotted by sin, who did no sin, who knew no sin, in whom was no sin, his wisdom was pure in every way, shape, fashion, and form. We're told a few things about the wisdom of Christ. One, we learn that He exhibited wisdom in the way that He lived. The book of Luke, chapter number 2, verse 40, says that the child grew, talking about Jesus, that the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. When you looked at the way the Lord Jesus lived and behaved, you were looking at wisdom in practice. Everything that He did, He did wisely. I'll go ahead and tell you, there's times in my life, and I hope that God gives me the wisdom. I, I, I feel a lot like Solomon did. I'm a child. I don't know how to go out or come in. I don't know how to lead your people, God. And, and thankfully, the Lord sometimes makes up for that insufficiency. And uh, if anything wise is done by this old boy, you better mark it down. It was God that did it, not me. Uh, but the fact of the matter is this, I, I, I try to exhibit wisdom in the way that I conduct myself, but sadly I fail at times. But when you looked at the Lord Jesus, you were looking at wisdom manifest. You were looking at someone that always behaved in the wisest manner. You know, by the way, we see this in His earthly ministry over and over and over again. We've been preaching on these transcendental truths in the morning, and, and over and over again you'll see people try to lay a snare for the Lord Jesus, and He will, with brilliant wisdom, find a way through that, navigate through that. He won't run from it. He'll walk right through it, but He'll do it in a way where He's unscathed. So one of the things, in fact, that they talked about was the wisdom of the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter number 13, uh, verse 53 says, It came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, He departed thence. And when He was come into His own country, He taught them in, the sin- in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? He didn't only exhibit wisdom, He expounded wisdom. The teachings that He taught contain wisdom so rich, so pure, so potent, so powerful, that at this very day God's people are fed mightily upon them. We could spend, listen, untold years just walking through the words of the Lord Jesus in the Gospels. And there's more in the Bible than just the Gospels, but I'm convinced we could spend years walking just through the words of the Lord Jesus, not even the narrative, just through the words of the Lord Jesus in the Gospels, and we'd never reach a place where we said we preached it all. We'd never reach a place where we'd say we've gotten everything there is to get out of it. The wisdom that the Lord Jesus expounded to the people around Him was such that they, they were astonished at His... I, I like this word, at His doctrine. They'd say, man, whence is this doctrine? They were astonished at what He taught, at the way He could cut to the core of the human condition and human need. And they were left awestruck at His wisdom. He expounded wisdom. But the Bible goes even further than that. You might say, well, preacher, that's good for those that live, but... Uh, What about us living today? Well, the Bible teaches us that Christ embodies wisdom. He endows it to the individual. 
And to know Christ, listen carefully, to know Christ, to know Him personally, experientially, intimately, is to know the wisdom of God. The way a man becomes wise is by walking with Christ. You want to be a wise person? Walk with God. And the wisdom of God will be manifest in your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, verse 23, We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. I don't have time to go into all of it, but there in 1 Corinthians, Paul reveals how that uh, when the world by wisdom knew not God, God chose the foolishness of preaching uh, to confound the wise, uh, that He said it not. He used uh, those that are at not to set it not, those that are. That He, through Jesus Christ, made a fool of this world's philosophy. And that a man, through observing the life of Christ... Uh, can understand and comprehend and appropriate some of that wisdom. In fact, it goes on to say in verse 30 of that chapter, But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. To have Christ is to have those things. And one of the things in that list is wisdom. And you might say, well, preacher, I know Christians that act like fools, and so do I. Amen. I, I know a lot of them. Maybe more of those than the opposite. But it's it's not because they're Christians. It's in spite of them being Christians. It's not because they're Christians, it's at the rejection of the wisdom of Christ that they exhibit foolishness. See, if we walk with God, we'll have that same spirit and that same ability of wisdom. Paul said in Colossians 2, verse 1, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom... In whom? Now, let's play the grammar game. Anytime you've got a pronoun, it always goes back to the nearest proper noun. In Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, If a man can know Christ, he'll know more than a man that knows everything else but does not know Christ. Now, I'm not advocating for ignorance. Uh, my, my preacher uh, used to uh, tell a story about a fellow that came up to him one time, uh, told him, said, ignorance is bliss. He said, brother, you're living in a blizzard. Amen. I, I'm not saying that, that it, it's, it's good to be ignorant, but I am saying this, that the source of wisdom comes from walking with Christ. I, and I need that, man. I don't know about you, but I need that. Because sometimes I don't know what the wise path is. And I, I need to know that if I can just get along with God and submit to His will and find out what the heart and mind of God is, then I can know the wisdom of God. Some of you making choices. And I just do a little preaching right here on a Sunday night. Some of you all making choices in life you don't know what to do. Preacher, what do I do? Find the will of God. It'll be, it'll be wisdom to you. Preacher, I, I've got these choices in front of me and I, I don't know what to do. This, this side looks appealing. That side looks appealing. This looks like a good choice. That looks like a good choice. That's usually when it's tough. When it's a choice between something easy and something... I mean, we, we know what the, the choice... When it's something good and something... I mean, do you want an ice cream cone or do you want a root canal? Amen? You know what the answer is there, right? Now, maybe if you take the one, you'll eventually get the other, but... You know what the answer is, but most of the time it's between things that look like good paths. And some of you are saying, Preacher, I just, man, I don't know what to do. Can I tell you what to do? I can't tell you what the right answer is to that question, but I can tell you how to find the right answer. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in God's Word. Ask God to give you wisdom. Ask God to direct you. Really humble your heart before Him and submit your spirit and say, Lord, whatever your will is, I'll do it. And you'll find that God will give you wisdom. That's what James said, if any among you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Have you asked God for wisdom about it? 
You might have asked everybody else for advice about it, but have you asked God for wisdom about it? If any among you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. Ask for wisdom, that heavenly wisdom that James talked about, that's uh, first pure, and then peaceable, and then righteous, and God can give you wisdom. The Lord Jesus, His wisdom was greater. Not only that, notice the next thing the Queen of Sheba uh, zeroes in on. Uh, We see it in verse number 4, when the Queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom, notice the next phrase, and the house that he had built. She was amazed by the work that he had accomplished. Now, I personally believe that this is talking about the the temple. Solomon built several houses. Uh, He built a house for himself to dwell in, a palace. He built the house of the Lord, of course. And he also built a house for the daughter of Pharaoh. And uh, there were a lot of things. In fact, that was one of the things that Solomon did for a lot of years. There was ongoing construction. Must look like I-40, amen, or Chapman Highway. There was ongoing construction in the land of Israel. And, uh, in fact, that was one of the things that created tension. Whenever he died and Rehoboam ascended the throne, the people was tired of getting taxed because Solomon spent all these years building. I do not know which house it is that Solomon built that she's talking about. But can I tell you something? I do know which house it is that the Lord Jesus built. And I know that that house is greater far than any house that Solomon ever built. You say, what house is that? That's the house of the Lord in this New Testament dispensation. That's the church of the living God. That's the body of Christ. It's a far greater accomplishment than anything Solomon ever did. Hey, listen, Solomon was seven years in building the temple. That's a miracle in and of itself if you read how the temple was built. Uh, It's a miracle uh, that it was built in seven years, especially considering that they couldn't do any work on site, any masonry work, because no hammers could be heard in the sound of the uh, ministration of the tabernacle there. They had to carve all the stones at the quarry and then haul them. It's a miracle. It's a miracle of God. It is a feat of architectural and engineering wonder that the temple was built in seven years. But can I tell you something? The The house that the Lord Jesus built, being the New Testament church, is far more wondrous. It didn't take seven years. It, it, it took a, a, a plan uh, that began before the world began. Uh, it, he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. Uh, but in three days and three nights, he abolished an old system of worship and established a new system of worship. In three days and three nights, uh, he did away with the old sanctuary and he resurrected a new sanctuary. And now we, as a part of the New Testament church, are part of a greater work than Solomon could have ever built. I think that the Lord Jesus, that His work is greater for a couple of reasons. One, because of His position in the house. Solomon was the king, and because he was the king, he did have a hallowed and honored position in the worship of the temple. But, uh, in fact, we'll say a word here in a moment about that hallowed position. He would sort of preside, he would observe, he would watch and overlook it on the feast days at what was transpiring. They had special places for Solomon and his family to sit because they were places of honor. But you know, at the end of the day, As wonderful as Solomon was, as amazing as Solomon was, at the end of the day, in the eyes of God, he wasn't nothing but a worshiper just like everybody else. He was a sinner just like everybody else. He did not hold any special place in the eyes of God of prominence over the house of God. In fact, in the Old Testament, it was forbid for a king to be a priest or a priest to be a king because God didn't want those two institutions running roughshod over one another. And so in in some ways, Solomon was even, even more limited than an average priest was. But listen to what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus in this dispensation of grace, His position in this spiritual house. It says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to Him that had appointed Him, as also Moses was faithful in all His 
house. Now, when it talks about house there, it's not talking about the family of Moses or the domicile of Moses. Uh, here we're talking about the context of the priesthood. And it's describing as Moses being uh, faithful uh, over the house, meaning the Old Testament system of worship. It says, For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. Uh, Moses was the, the, the dispensation of the Old Testament Levitical law. He was the means through which God communicated that system of worship. He didn't create that system of worship. Uh, the Bible says that he built all things after the pattern that was shown him in heaven. Moses didn't craft the tabernacle. He didn't, he, he didn't engineer the furniture. He, he didn't design the utensils. He just took what God told him and gave it to the people. Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean this. When the feast days would come, Solomon... He, he would he would go to the temple in his royal garb. He would uh, overlook and, and, and sort of supervise over the administration of everything that was taking place. But at the end of the day, even he had to have sacrifices made for him. At the end of the day, even he was just a servant and nothing more. But the house that the Lord Jesus built, being the church of the New Testament, is far superior as far as uh, the house itself. But even beyond that, the position that the Lord Jesus holds in that house is far superior. For the Lord Jesus, listen, He's not just a servant at the house. He's the head of the house. He's the head of the body. He's the master over all things. He's the Lord over all things. He is the supreme authority in the New Testament church. By the way, that's why I believe in being independent. Because I don't believe anybody ought to have the right to take from Jesus His authority and His sovereignty. I don't believe anything ought to stand between the body and the head. Amen? I think that's natural, don't you? If you don't believe that, let's get one of them magicians do one of them saw tricks and put a saw blade in your neck. You probably wouldn't like that, would you? Amen? If there's anything between the head and the body except the neck, something's wrong. Uh, in the same way, hey, listen, there ought not be nothing between the head and the body. There ought to be Christ the head and the local New Testament church the body. I, I, I believe that there ought to be direct access, don't you? I believe that's biblical. I don't believe any human being or human institution or human entity ought to usurp that authority, ought to disrupt that connection. He's the head over the body, nobody else. I see his position in the house, but I also notice the composition of the house. Uh, it's an amazing thing. I could preach eight sermons just talking about all the things in the temple that were amazing. The materials that were used and the careful, uh, amazing, probably divinely energized craftsmanship that went into the building of the, of the temple. I, I, you'll never convince me they could have done what they did and done it in seven years without God helping them. It's amazing to think about. But you know that the house that the Lord Jesus built is of even greater building of even greater structure, of even greater composition than even the temple was. You know what it's made of? It's made of you and me. Now you might say, well preacher, that don't sound wonderful. A lot of these folks around here, I, I'd trade them for a plank of gold in a heartbeat or, or, or some fine lumber or some brass or some silver. But can I remind you that God values us more than we value each other. Hey, listen, what did it take? All it took was some sweat and labor and energy and diligence and work to pull those materials out of the earth. But what did it take to pull us out of the pit we was in? That was the blood of Christ. Something far superior than silver or gold received from your vain traditions from your fathers. 
And God was willing to pay the price so that you and I could be a part of this building. First uh, Peter chapter number 2 says it beautifully. Verse number 4, to whom coming, we read a little bit about this this morning, to whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also, like Jesus, ye also as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way, verse 19, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. It's a, it's a superior thing. And we could go all the way through the book of Hebrews, and it's a theme in the book of Hebrews, that the lesser is replaced by the better. Uh, Let me say that again, that the lesser is replaced by the better. That's why there was always in the Bible an emphasis on the second man. It was always the second son. It was always the second man. It was always the second brother. It was always the second ruler. It was a picture of how the Lord Jesus would displace that old system of worship with Himself. And in the same respect, that first house was displaced by a superior house. Whose house, the Hebrews writer said, are we. I think His work is greater. Not only that, listen, the next thing she was amazed by, uh, the Bible says in verse 5, she was amazed by the meat of Solomon's table. She sat down at Solomon's dinner table and said, man, I have never seen a spread like this. Now, what is really being intimated there? Of course, his wealth is spoken of later on. And when you talked about the meat of a person's table, the fare that they provided, the food that they set forth, you were talking about the great lavish wealth that they possessed. And she said, man, I have never seen anyone that had the wealth to set a table the way that Solomon did. The Bible describes how that there were times throughout the history of the children of Israel when uh, people would bring to Solomon exotic pets and animals from far countries. And uh, there would be uh, people that would travel from far distant lands that would bring spices. In fact, the Queen of Sheba here, the Bible says, gave a gift of spices to Solomon that was unlike any that had ever been given throughout human history. And so Solomon's pantry was pretty well stocked. And it was a great symbol of his wealth and prosperity that he could set a table like he did. In fact, the Bible describes the thousands of people that every day were fed by the king, that were a part of his administration, a part of his regime, a part of his house. And, and every day, there were how many, uh, how many oxen had to be slain and how many lambs and goats had to be slain and cattle had to be slain just to feed the people in Solomon's house. And that's what it's talking about. It's not that she's just saying, man, this is good food. She's saying, Solomon, I can't believe you have the wealth to feed all these people. She was amazed how prosperous he was. Solomon was indeed a prosperous man. In fact, the Bible describes uh, the amount of treasures and riches that Solomon had. It was greater than probably anybody, if you adjust for inflation, has ever possessed throughout human history. It's almost unfathomable the amount of wealth that he had. But can I tell you that the wealth of the Lord Jesus is far superior to the wealth that Solomon had. Really, let's, let's just talk about the immediate context. I think the wealth of his table is greater. 
Because, you know, all that wealth that Solomon had, it couldn't keep him from making shipwreck of his life. And all that wealth that Solomon had, it could not satisfy him. Later on, you can read in the book of Ecclesiastes where he talks about his pursuit of satisfaction outside of a, of a walk with God. And he talks about how he got men singers and women singers and how he built houses and, and how he got instruments of music and how he got servants and how he got all these things. You know what he said at the end of it? He said, Vandy of Vandy's, saith the preacher, all is vanity. He said, none of those things satisfied me. He said, it's all folly. It's all vanity. It all burns up. A man dies and his wealth goes to another. said that a rich man dies the way a poor man does, that a fool dies the way that a wise man does. He said, don't none of it satisfy. But can I tell you that if you get a taste of what the Lord Jesus has at His table, it will indeed satisfy you. You see, the Queen of Sheba, she left and hungered again. But if you get a taste of what the Lord Jesus has, you'll never hunger anymore. John chapter 6 says it this way in verse 32, Then Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto Him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. You say, preacher, what, what is the Lord talking about there? What kind of satisfaction? What does He mean, never hunger? What does He mean, never thirst? My experience, Baptists are some of the hungriest people walking the earth. If physical hunger is a mark of not being saved, man, this whole crowd's going to bust hell wide open. Amen? So that's not what He's talking about. He's talking about spiritual satisfaction. Of which Solomon's table was completely unable to provide any satisfaction. All that all that meat, all that wealth of the table, it, it could fill a person's belly, but it couldn't fill their heart. It could not satisfy them. But listen to what Jesus' table does. Uh, verse number 47 of that chapter, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. He said, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. In other words, if you know the Lord Jesus in salvation, you have something far greater, far richer than what Solomon could ever give. The wealth of his table, not only that, I believe the Lord Jesus is richer in the wealth of his treasury. Not just the way that Solomon could satisfy his servants, but also the way he could fill his coffers. He had gold, he had prosperity, unthinkable to the human mind. But the Lord Jesus has something far richer, for it's not silver and gold, although he does own those things. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Mace Jackson, you say, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and the hills under a thousand cattle, and the taters in those hills. Amen? Uh, and that's true. And guess what? He owned the gold in those hills, too. Uh, he has all the wealth, all the riches. But God, see, understands that there's things more valuable uh, than just hunks of metal. He understands there's things more valuable uh, than just uh, food and just crops. Uh, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be rich. Well, what's that richness? That's the eternal life that we experience and the life that we have in Him. Uh, Ephesians 1.18, Paul was praying for the church at Ephesus that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. He said that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. 
What inheritance? He's talking about that new body that's going to be given to us, that new life that we're going to taste in and share in, that 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 existence of sinless perfection and eternal life that we're going to experience. And Peter said it very well in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, preserved in heaven for you. Can I tell you something? It didn't take long after Rehoboam ascended the throne for all of the great wondrous wealth of Solomon to be dissipated, uh, pillaged, and plundered. Carried into captivity, taken away, never to be seen again. But the treasures and the riches that we have in Christ Jesus, they're undefiled. They fade not away. They're incorruptible. Thief can't break through. Moth can't uh, eat it. Rust can't canker it. What we have in Jesus is eternal. Because of that, His wealth is greater. Look at verse number 5. Here's something else she saw. She saw the meat of his table, but also the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord. I think she noticed his workers were above par. She said, man, I've never seen servants like this. Uh, she said the, the way that they conduct themselves, the way they do their job, the spirit, the attitude, the attentiveness that they have, the way that they, they, they uh, clothe themselves. I mean, everything. She said, Solomon, I've never seen servants like yours. And she said, you know, above all of it, in verse 8, happy are thy men. Happy are these thy servants. She said, I've never seen them. Not only do they have all this, and not only are they attentive, and not only are they great servants, and not only do they do it with a right attitude, but they're genuinely happy. He said, man, I've never seen anything like that. His workers were great. Man, his servants were remarkable. They were above par. But can I tell you something? The child of God that's walking with God, that's living with God, is a greater worker than any servant that Solomon ever enjoyed. Uh, you know, the Queen of Sheba described a few things. One, she described their ability. Uh, she said they're the sitting of his servants. In other words, she looked at the way the table was spread. She looked at the way everything was laid out, and she said, man, they know what they're doing. Their ability is far beyond what I have ever seen. They were diligent and devoted to their tasks. Listen, uh, you know, God doesn't necessarily need ability. He needs availability. But I found that God will take availability and turn it into ability. You'll be amazed what God can do through you if you'll make yourself available to Him. Uh, you'd be amazed how God can use your life. She talked about their ability, talked about their attendance, said the attendance of His ministers. What does that mean? They were attentive to Solomon's needs and the Queen of Sheba's needs. Uh, let me tell you, I, I, the, there, I guess there is too much of a good thing. I do want to be able to sit and enjoy my meal in peace, but I like it when a waiter or a waitress is attentive. I don't like to have to sit and give the, give the, the stink eye to a waiter walking by in order to get a little more sweet tea. Amen? I like it when... Our, amen? I like it when they're paying attention. I like it when I sit my glass down and they hear the ice hit the bottom of the cup and move into action. Or better yet, I like it when they never even let it get that low. When she looked at the way Solomon's ministers were, she said, man, Solomon, they pay attention to your needs and whatever you need, they do. Whatever you want, they're there. They're just ready to serve in any way. Man, God help us to be that way with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, whatever you need, whatever you want, it ought to be that the ice never reaches the bottom of Jesus' cup as long as His people are around. That we say, Lord, I'll not let things get past need. I'll not let things reach the bottom of the barrel and the bottom of the cup. I'll step up and I'll stand in and I'll serve and I'll labor. And Lord, I'll do whatever it takes to make sure that your needs are met. Uh, she talked about their attendance, talked about their, uh-oh, talked about their apparel. 
I know, but that's what your Bible says. Their apparel. I said, man, they dress different. They dress different. You can tell who the servants are. You can tell who the servants are. That's what she's saying. She's saying, I notice that they wear different apparel than everyone else, and I notice that their apparel is kept in good order and it's appropriate for the task and office that they are occupied with. You know, as God's people, uh, people ought not have to learn our social security number before they find out we're a Christian. They ought to just be able to see the way we look, the way we live, the way we conduct ourselves, and know there's something different about us. Now, I'm not saying we ought to go out here and try to just just uh, be peculiar for the sake of peculiar. I'm not saying that we ought to try to uh, cause ourselves to stick out like a sore thumb uh, just to gain attention. But I am saying that as God's people, I, I do believe that if we're walking with the Lord, and if we're... Uh, listen, the world is so wicked, we can't walk with God and be like them. So if we're walking with God, it will make a difference in the way that we live. I, I noticed he, he talked about their apparel. He talked about their allegiance. He said the cupbearers. Now, what was a cupbearer? A cupbearer was somebody, it was like, it was like a royal food taster. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for royalty to be poisoned. And so the cupbearer was somebody that'd bear the cup to the king and the food to the king. And before the king would ever partake in it, they would partake in it to make sure it was safe. It was a job that was reserved only to those that were most devoted, most loyal, uh, most allegiant to the king. Because no one else would hazard their lives and no one else could be trusted except the people that loved him the most. And she said, man, even the people whose job it is to like maybe drink poison every day, even they're happy about coming to work. They're willing to hazard their life. They'd a lot rather die than let you die, Solomon. They'd a lot rather die than let you die. Man, what a picture of how our attitude ought to be, mortifying ourselves. Listen, I've got to decrease if he's going to increase. And I'm willing to drink that cup if that's what it takes. I'm willing to put myself at risk so that He can be magnified. Talked about their service and talked about their spirit. I'm not going to dwell on it. But she just said in verse number 8, man, they're happy. They're happy. They're happy. They didn't have near anything to be happy about like you and I got to be happy about. You know, the book of Nehemiah, or excuse me, not Nehemiah, but the book of Nahum says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. You know, a great many of us are weak because we have no joy. We've lost the joy of the Lord. Joy comes along with service. Joy comes along with devotion to Him. Joy comes along with communion with Him. And a great many of us are weak because we have no joy in our lives. She looked at these servants and she said, Man, they enjoy doing what they're doing. It's not always easy to serve God. We will not always enjoy the tasks that are required in the service of God. But we ought always enjoy serving God. You say, what, what's the distinction, preacher? You ain't always going to enjoy what it takes to serve God, but you ought to always take joy in the fact that you are serving Him, that you are pleasing Him, that what you're doing is worthwhile, and heaven takes note of it and recognizes it and makes a record of it, and that God smiles when He sees your devotion. That ought to give you joy. We find this an example after example throughout the New Testament. I'll just read a couple of them to you out of the book of Acts. You already know them, but in Acts 5, 40, when Peter and James and John had been beaten for the testimony of the Lord Jesus, it says that they had beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Here they still had fresh cuts and fresh bruises. And they walked out of that uh, prison house rejoicing for the fact that they could do something for God. Uh, The Bible says at midnight, Acts 16, when Paul and Silas are locked up for the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they prayed and sang praises unto God. 
saying that God's people ought to be the happiest people walking the earth. And then finally, and I'll be done tonight, I, I believe, let, let, me, let me just review them here. I, I believe His wisdom is greater. I believe His work is greater. I believe His wealth is greater. I believe His workers are greater. But notice what it says at the end of verse 5. Here's the last thing she, she noticed, and she just had to say something about it. She noticed His ascent by which He went up unto the house of the Lord. I'd say this, that His worship is greater. Now, it's interesting. This is strange language, I'll admit to you. His ascent by which he went. What's she talking about there? Well, it would seem there are two possibilities. One, we get a hint of it in 2 Kings 16, uh, when an invading foreign power is coming in and plundering the land of Israel, and Ahaz is upon the throne, and he begins to try to try to hide and, and try to mitigate uh, the, the damage that would be done. And by doing that, he tries to hide some of the more precious items and objects in the land. And the Bible says in verse 17, you don't have to understand all that context, but look what it says in verse 17. If you're there, you don't have to be, but 2 Kings 16, verse 17. It says, Ahaz cut off the borders of the bases, removed the laver from off them, took down the sea from off the brazen oxen that were under it, and put it upon a pavement of stones. And the covert for the Sabbath day that they had built in the house and the king's entry without turned he from the house of the Lord for the king of Assyria. Now, it would appear from that... The word covert there means a covered place, like a patio, like a gazebo, like a covered area. And it would seem as though that when Solomon constructed the temple and then when afterwards when he built his palace, it would seem as though he had built a special covered place, either a walkway from his palace there. That's why it says that the king's entry was there. That could be what it means. Or at the very least, a patio for those that were ministering in the temple to dwell in after their service was done. But notice what it says. It says the king's entry with that. In other words, Solomon had his own entrance into the house of the Lord. We might say it this way, that Solomon had direct access into the temple. He understood how important it was. He had learned this from his daddy. He had learned this from the history of the children of Israel, that when uh, forces were coming to knock down your walls, that that when uh, war was uh, roiling and fomenting throughout the land, that the king needed to be able to get into the presence of God and inquire of God wisdom. He understood how important it was that he had direct access. So he built a place so that he could immediately get in uh, to the temple, so that he could inquire of the priest, so that he could make sacrifice. He understood that his ability to reign and to rule uh, it, it, it relied upon his ability to get alone with God. You know, that access is amazing. It's important. It bespeaks his wisdom. But can I tell you that the access that the Lord Jesus has is far greater? Solomon did this because he wanted instant access. But can I tell you that the Lord Jesus, he don't just have instant access to God. Listen carefully. He has constant access to God. There's a difference. Solomon at least had to roll out of bed and put his shoes on to go over to the temple. But you know, the Lord Jesus... Well, I'll just go ahead and read it to you. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, "...seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need." We have a high priest seated at the right hand of God the Father. We get greater access through Jesus 
than Solomon ever enjoyed. Uh, Paul said on several occasions, we have boldness and access by faith and by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think his worship is greater because he has constant access, but not only that, I think his complete apprehension. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, it would seem as though part of the purpose of this pavilion that was built was to house those that had been ministering in the temple before their allotted time was up to go back to their homes. But it seems as though probably it was also a place for Solomon to observe all of the goings-on on feast days. And probably part of what the Queen of Sheba is talking about here is she made a trip with Solomon on a feast day and she beheld everything that happened. You can envision them seated in that royal pavilion and Solomon explaining in careful detail what that of the process meant. Describing the priest's activity, describing the sacrificial animal, why this sacrifice was different from what she would have seen back in Egypt, why the shed blood was necessary uh, to atone for man's sin, how that the priest served as a mediator between God and man and how he took that blood and presented it before God and how that God was a holy God. And I think part of the reason she was amazed was because Solomon gave her an education in what real worship looked like. He understood everything that was taking place. But can I tell you this? Solomon's apprehension of spiritual truth was far inferior to the apprehension that the Lord Jesus has. Hey, listen, Solomon could tell about the sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrifice. Solomon could tell about the priest. Jesus is the priest. Solomon could tell about the temple. Jesus is the temple. Can I close it with this? I've gone too long. I've gone, but can I just say this? That the worship and access that we have in the Lord Jesus is far greater than what Solomon ever had. We can get in the glory of God more today than Solomon who saw the glory of God fall when the temple was ordained. We can get in the glory in a far more real way today than Solomon ever could. You know that what we experience when the Spirit of God moves in our hearts, something that those Old Testament saints never experienced, what we experience when the Spirit of God convicts us, when He comforts us, when He blesses us, when He guides us and steers us and prompts us and pushes us and restrains us, that's something far superior to what Moses saw when he saw the backside of God. That's something greater than what Jacob experienced when he wrestled with God by the brook Penuel. That's something greater than what Solomon and beheld when he saw the Shekinah glory of God fill the temple and the priests unable to minister. We have something far greater than what they ever had. You know, Paul talks about that glory and he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The culmination of God's glorious and wondrous working is that He would dwell in old, rotten, wicked people like you and I, that He, that I, a child of hell, should in His image shine, that He would transform and change me and dwell in me, and that I would be a little temple of God walking about through this world, bearing witness and shining a light to the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this treasure, Peter said, uh, or Paul said, in earthen vessels. This glorious treasure we have in earthen vessels that the glory might be to God, that the praise might be unto God and not unto ourselves. I'm saying that we have something far greater than what Solomon ever experienced. Lord, help you and I to never lose the wonder of it all. Let's